Hello, and welcome to Think Queerly. I'm your host, Darren Steele. So this podcast is a place where I get to share my evolving ideas as a coach and a deep thinker about how we can create a more loving and accepting world for everyone. Basically, liberation for all of humanity. And I do this through an intersection of my lived experiences as a gay man, my interests in queer liberation, politics, the issues of inequality and prejudice, the study of neuroscience, and my studies and contemplation of the Tao Te Ching and how to apply that ancient wisdom in an equitable way to how we show up and exist in the world treat ourselves and treat others and to lead ourselves first. Well, today I want to talk about silence and noise, what I'm calling from silence to the deafening disturbance of difference. When everyone is shouting over everyone else, does anyone have a discernible message, one that breaks through to hearts and minds with everything that's going on in the right in the world right now, and in, in the last couple of years, how people are so quick to attack for what might be a rather small thing, this is definitely a challenge. There's a time and a place absolutely to speak up against injustice, especially when it's absolutely harmful and problematic and intentional. But what about the smaller things that maybe weren't intended. Well, that's what I want to talk about here today. So I was drawn to reread a number of articles um, by Audre Lorde. And the article I pulled out was The Transformation of Silence into Language and Action. And I realized that there is absolutely a time when silence was most clearly the domain of ideological systems of control like the patriarchy and racism. And those systems of control would still like everyone under the influence, under the grip of those ideologies to remain silent because silence protects those systems and allows them to be reinforced and perpetuated. Quoting Audre Lorde, I've come to believe over and over again that what is most important to me must be spoken, made verbal and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood. So, one's chosen, agreeable, or enforced silence in a system like patriarchy or racism, and an oppressive system, one's silence allows that system to, to continue and to perpetuate. And when those who are in power, those who control the reins of systemic racism and patriarchy and white privilege, for example, when those in power allow those who are oppressed to speak up, but then they require uh, the oppressed to explain why they're oppressed, well, then the ideological construction and constraints of the system are only further reinforced. Meaning, if you allow those who are oppressed to speak up and demand that they explain why they're oppressed, the oppressor is just stepping back and kind of smiling down on the oppressed going, let them explain all they want, because this is 
the understanding that the people who are not seeing need to see and need to do the work themselves to understand and break the pattern of ignorance. But it does require both sides. It does require the speaking up. And it does require people looking at ways in which they can really break down these systems to rise above it, to dissolve the system, to stand on the other side of it. And sometimes a queer viewpoint is so important and sometimes sadly missed. But we can witness a history of people speaking up, women speaking up for women's rights and the creation of feminism, gays and lesbians speaking up for their rights and freedoms, black people and people of color speaking up for their rights and freedoms, trans people speaking up for their rights and freedoms, homeless people speaking up for their rights and access to safe housing, everyday citizens speaking up for the health of the planet and for controlling and slowing climate change. And just add to that list, which is incomplete, the intersectionalities of all those people speaking up who cross borders and boundaries that just simply demonstrates the diversity of humanity. Let's call it that instead of difference, the diversity of humanity, when diversity is a good thing, because all too often the word difference is used to create division. But now it seems everyone is speaking at a level that is so loud and more often than not, not in a form we would call dialogue. It's shouting, personal attacks, arguing to prove one's point, and seeking to be the winner of the argument. Now, just let me step outside of this conversation for a moment. When there are protests, like at the murder of George Floyd, that needs to be loud. That's a perfect moment when that kind of loudness and upset is expressed. I'm talking about sort of the everyday stuff that's going on, which is going to become more clear as we keep going through this discussion here. What I'm talking about is the deafening alarm that makes many of us want to completely pull back and become silent and not to pull out of the discussion, which when it's a total argument, it's no longer discussion, not to pull out of it, but to bear witness to what is going on in order to come up with a more meaningful, thoughtful, and hopefully compassionate message which people may choose to pay attention to. I've said this before, this is one of my great challenges. I am quick to reaction and anger, and I've been working on that for a long time and getting much better at it. These difficult conversations, these difficult moments... I require of myself the time to reflect, especially if there's something I need to learn, especially if there's light I need to shine on my own ignorance. So one of the big issues I'm seeing is how people react in the extreme to what might otherwise be called a microaggression. Now, bear with me if this is triggering to you because I hope my explanation 
will sufficiently explain what I'm trying to impart. I think this is where we often see a lot of cancel culture coming into play and where certain people label other people snowflakes. You hurt my feelings is often the refrain, but there is a significant difference between hurting someone's feeling and controlling or taking away someone's rights and freedoms. Those two things cannot be compared. They're, they're disparate. They're not even at opposite ends of the spectrum. They're entirely different things. So intention matters. And so does impact, because impact is, is the final product. Like working on a goal, that's the outcome. Impact is an outcome. It is the result of actions taken, words said. But some people will say that impact trumps intention. And I want to disagree kind of semantically, meaning I want to disagree about the meaning or the understanding of what this means to say that impact trumps intention. Because I think there's an important distinction to be aware of when it, when it comes to impact, is that when the impact of one's actions harms someone else, we have to know, we have to ask the question, was that intentional or inadvertent? And that's often what happens in courts of law, is trying to determine whether something was intentional or not. And that's why we have manslaughter, first-degree murder, second- and third-degree murder, and all these different labels uh, that indicate whether things were absolutely intentional or not. And that's when intention is of utmost importance and consideration with respect to the impact received or perceived. Because when that impact has happened, it's often very easy to jump and attack back when the intention may have been entirely to be helpful, to be thoughtful, but maybe there was ignorance. Maybe there was simply a word expressed that the person saying the word didn't realize how much of a trigger it was. And we can have a long argument about, oh, people should be less ignorant. But it's a big country with differing, differing levels of economic status and educational inequalities. And the kind of news that people have access to or listen to and the situations in which they've been brought up and what they've learned from their families, their parents, and what they believe that could sometimes blind them to understanding. And that's where patience and open-heartedness also come into play. It's also where these so-called microaggressions are often misunderstood when someone overreacts to what may appear to be a microaggression or a trigger, their reaction does not negate the emotional harm or trauma that that person reacting may have experienced. Okay? Somebody who isn't having that triggering experience may wonder why somebody else is so upset. This is trauma. This is some 
traumatic experience that the person experienced has has experienced in their past and their reaction may seem extreme and we we do have to honor that and the challenge is that the reaction may be just as intense for a micro as for a macro aggression but we need to help the situation because these things are context dependent so how was the original information communicated? Did a single sentence or a few words trigger someone in a thousand-word or two-thousand-word article when the article was otherwise not problematic? You know, perhaps it was just a wrongly word uh, used word or put in the wrong situation. Alternatively, you know, read. Twitter, and what you often get is the epitome of one microaggression after another. Twitter is an environment most suited to the intention of causing harm, whether that be just stirring the pot and wanting to be an asshole, or an outright attack in 128 characters or less. And this is why I prefer this medium, whether I'm doing a long-form article or podcast, or whether I'm reading and consuming, listening to long podcasts, because broad context in narrative is necessary in thought leadership and in having these kinds of discussions to examine ideologies and prejudice and racism and to actually get into discussions and dialogue. Reading a quote from um, a letter that was published on Harper's called A Letter on Justice and Open Debate, I quote, The free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society, is daily becoming more constricted. It is now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. End quote. Far too often I see people react to something an author has written or a podcaster has said, which they take entirely out of context. This has happened numerous times to me. I've also done the same thing, so I'm not abjectly blaming others. I'm working to make myself always better in this context. And we have to consider if someone is attempting to be an ally in a situation, if somebody is attempting to understand a challenging situation, or if someone is attempting to take ownership of a situation by, by educating, by self-educating themselves and sharing in their journey, in which case, as they're learning, they may take the risk to share what's going on and say something that could be triggering to someone else. So we need to allow those individuals to fully express their truth which could come out wrong, but is coming out without the intention to harm. And I understand how a trigger can upset someone which leads to perceived threat and stress, whether that be a micro or a macro aggression. And from a neuroscience perspective, stress is stress. It doesn't really matter how small or how large we, we react and it takes two sides to have a quality, equitable conversation or a dialogue. 
And this is when silence becomes an essential tool in this alarm, this crazy amount of disruptive noise. Sometimes we need to step back and consider the words that we've used in our communication, especially if we've been called out for it, which may or may not be correct. And we need to understand the meanings that those words might have for others, whether it was a small triggering or a massive triggering result slash impact. And we need to understand how we can practice greater compassion in connecting with that person who feels transgressed. But again, it's a two-way street. You know, at the same time, when that person who feels transgressed, when the harm was unintentional, needs to find a way to support dialogue. And this is not me saying that the person who is transgressed, the person who is prejudiced against, needs to be supportive. I know it sounds like that's what I'm saying, and I'm trying to find a way of saying it so that it doesn't sound like that. But here's what I understand. If two people are in disagreement to whatever degree, and if the communication is escalating continually towards argument or a fight, then there's no prediction, there's no common ground, and there's little to no more opportunity for an intelligent, thoughtful response. The direction of failing communication is a path of only reaction. Reaction from stress, from fight, flight, or freeze. Now, if we assume a situation of two people, if both sides push back against each other, no matter who feels more transgressed or oppressed, nothing will be solved. Neither side will come any closer, and a newer continued pattern will be reinforced, which is namely that the other side is always wrong. And that may include a host of stereotypes and assumed narratives, which again are further reinforced about gays are always like this, trans people are always like this, black people are always like this, and we just perpetuate that cycle. Another relevant quote here from the Harper's Letter of Justice and Open Debate, quote, The restriction of debate, whether by a repressive government or an intolerant society, invariably hurts those who lack power and makes everyone less capable of democratic participation. End quote. You know, the old expression, there are two sides to every story, I think offers a helpful insight in the form of a suggestion. Now, you don't have to agree with the other person, but when you listen with openness to understand their side of the story, no matter how uncomfortable that makes you, that other person feels respected. And as human beings, most of us unconsciously attempt to return that sentiment. When someone respects us, we often try and turn around and respect them. Unless we're under such stress and duress, then in that moment, there's no way in which we can actually turn around and be supportive of them until we go into that silence, gather our wits about us, and figure out how to come back into a dialogue. A very useful tool, a simple tool, one I'm practicing more and more is to ask a question instead of making a statement because it, most of us just are 
unconsciously trained to want to close a question. We want to close the conversational loop when we're asked a question. So you're inviting that person to share some information, their insights, or their opinion with you. And you can ask pointed questions, but that's very different than telling someone what they need to do, which is you pushing against them and they will resist. And with every story, every situation in conversation, in dialogue, in comments on an article, stick to the narrative, stick to the origin by pulling in threads and ideas that have nothing to do with the argument that you might be creating in the moment to substantiate what you believe to be true, regardless of whether it's true or not, that's a poor and disrespectful form of communication because you're no longer playing fair. If the other person is doing that, keep coming back to the source whether challenging them on information that they're pulling in that has nothing to do with the original narrative, story, podcast, article, or by only going back to the original point of contention. So, like, also making a negative comment or a a hurtful criticism or, or calling someone out about a quote or a soundbite from a much larger larger article or, you know, a 60-second soundbite for a podcast. And that's one of the ways I promote my podcast, a 60- or 90-second soundbite to let people know a new podcast out, and maybe that 60-second soundbite will interest them to listen to the 20- or 30-minute full duration. When you take just that quote out of context without going to the source It entirely invalidates your opinion, in my opinion. Because while you might have something interesting to say about that quotation or soundbite, you are commenting out of context and your comment may have already been addressed in the complete and original form. So slow down. Listen. Pause. And if you're not sure, be silent. Dialogue and discussion seem to be under threat as much as the stability of the Earth's ecosystem. We cannot keep blaming the person when the system is really the problem. Yes, there are some bad people, and people do bad things intentionally. But when The aggression is systemic, ideologically based. That's where we need to start. The systems of oppression and prejudice are the necessary targets of humanitarians, of people like you, most likely, who are listening, and myself, that want to make the world a better place, that want to fight for, speak for, make change for equality, Attacking well-meaning individuals who meant no harm when you really look at their message and realize they didn't intentionally mean to hurt with what they said often backfires because sometimes that creates confirmation bias in those being attacked and that person thinks, well, 
that's just like what everyone is saying about that group of people. Well, I'm just going to keep feeling this way. They might not be saying that exactly, but they put up their defenses and they pull back because they tried to be vulnerable and express something as a way of trying to understand, support, or show allyship. Or they just took the risk to make a conversation or a dialogue because there was something they disagreed with. Silence is valuable in its forms of witnessing. Silence when it is an action, not passive. The action of silence offers the value of witnessing, noticing, and allowing someone the time to consider how to respond. Silence is the space between reaction and response, and too few of us engage with meaningful, thoughtful, and self-reflexive silence. To be the change we want to see in the world, silence is a necessary practice for increased conscious awareness, and not to remain in silence, to not say anything at all but instead to improve our ability to not always be so immediately reactive and on the defensive. Breaking the silence that is born of fear or learned oppression or prejudice or inequality is the path to freedom. Dialogue is how we connect with each other and humanize our experiences. Silence is not dialogue and neither is an attack or defensive argument in which one or both sides are trying to win. I want to close with two quotes here. The first, again, from Audre Lorde in her article, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. And I quote, Difference must not be merely tolerated, but seen as a fund of necessary polarities between which our creativity can spark like a dialectic. Only then does the necessity for interdependency become unthreatening. Only then does the necessity for interdependency become unthreatening. Only within that interdependency of different strengths, acknowledged and equal, can the power to seek new ways of being in the world generate, as well as the courage and sustenance to act where there are no charters? And then, finally, a relevant article that just got published yesterday by Ram Dass, um, or rather the foundation um, for Ram Dass, who passed away um, a short while ago on finding space for equanimity and social justice, an appropriate article, and the link will be in the published article, which you'll find in the show notes. And I quote, Open-hearted appreciation of individual differences in humanity rather than judgment is very important. There's a lot to think about there, and I invite you to listen to this podcast again 
And I also invite you into the dialogue. Dialogue and conversation. Ask questions when you're on social media instead of attacking. If you have something that you want to say to me, ask a question. Share an insight. But it's something I cannot tolerate is attack, especially personal, because that's just a reflection of what's going on with you and not with me. And that's not to be mean in saying that. It's just a truth. When I attack someone and feel ashamed for doing it afterwards on social media, I recognize that's a weakness in me. And at least I recognize it and attempt to correct it in the future. And this, I think, is where we start. Recognizing our weaknesses and that we are all human. We are all part of the same species. So why are we acting like we're all from different planets? <laughs>